Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And as I said a few months ago, it's Jan Bartlett and it's great to be back after a couple of weeks not being able to do the program, but hopefully everything will go okay today. And on the program today, we'll be looking at Nakbar, 70 years on with Professor Bassam Daly, who's um, an academic in Adelaide. He's also the Vice President of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, and he'll be talking about his family in particular and the impact that that has had on them over all those years and the situation in Palestine at the moment. Also, what next for Malaysia now that Najib is gone and the old PM is back? A lot of people not quite too sure what's going to happen there, but I'll be speaking with Lee Tan, who's a member of Bursay Australia, and Bursay is a coalition of NGOs around the world trying to get free and fair elections in Malaysia. And we'll be looking at what's happening in the Philippines with the proposed deportation of Sister Patricia Fox, Australian nun, who's been living and working with the people in the Philippines for nearly 30 years. Peter Murphy will be talking about Pat. And the events in 1968 in France, what was known as May 1968. Journalist and researcher Nick McCullen has the story. But first, Mr Kevin Healy's got a few stories. A weak journalist that when satire sadly can't apply to the events in Jerusalem and on the Gaza border as the displaced are slaughtered for highlighting their displacement. Trump's timing clearly designed to rub salt into the wounds of the displaced to depict those who stole their land as the heroes, but then his life has been based on theft and thus the events and the massacre are not the stuff of satire, of humour, but also cannot be ignored. Not meant as satire, but if we are to believe Trump's UN ambassador Nikki Haley, Iranians must have infiltrated Zion, stolen Zion military uniforms and fired on the Palestinians because she said Iran was the guilty party. Further, and we could treat this satirically but won't in the circumstances, the US vetoed a Security Council move for a full inquiry, backed by Australia of course, while continually denouncing Russia for vetoing US of motions on Syria. Back to normal nonsense, a week when the government was popping the corks as the number of successful prosecutions arising out of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Smash the Union's multi-trillion dollar commission soared to, um, let's see, soared to, to zero as the magistrate's court proved the law is an ass by confirming the prosecution's withdrawal of charges against two evil, evil union bosses. That pejorative which epitomises evil union boss confirmed for no more substantive reason than lack of evidence. 
For goodness sake, the Royal Commission didn't let that worry it. Council assisting in his role as Crown Prosecutor making daily allegations of evil sensationalised across the media, leading every front page and news report reported as fact as real. And if making these allegations without evidence was good enough for the Crown Prosecutor, then how contemptuous of the Royal Commission's totally unbiased his honour and the Royal Commission itself to expect evidence and proof now when the Royal Commission found them guilty the very day the caring business class government established the commission as its first item of business. Sadly, the media was unable to publish the reputation of all these no-evidence-needed allegations when they were proved non-evidence, but then by that time it was old news and there were critical, urgent matters like commemorating some proud train-killer battle in which the people we invaded somewhere across the planet had the audacity to train-kill our brave invaders, cream of troubluwazi cannon fodder youth or that week's Fashion Week and who's wearing what and who made it. Oh, well, presumably some Bangladeshi slave who hadn't been killed or injured for life in a workplace accident, the caring employers and the ultra-expensive labels so regret and promise to redress. Every time they promise sincerely to redress. But seriously, how can anyone who reads or watches the Lord Rupert of Wapping outlets, especially the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, say for one second that John Setka, for instance, is not guilty? Those astute readers and viewers know he is guilty of almost every crime committed in this society and what a stroke of luck that that media just happened to be outside the homes of these officials at the very time they were enjoying a Sunday afternoon with their family that the, sorry, the coppers raided them in paramilitary style, brimming with weapons to show how evil these, as it now turns out, non-criminals are and thus could expose their criminality to the world. Most fortuitous coincidence. Not that the law didn't do all it could to find the evidence, as the prosecution case unraveled due to the caring business class witnesses providing about 10,000 versions of the evidence, the court promised they would be, or one of them would, be exonerated from self-incrimination if only he could get his act together. Look, the prosecution has no intention of taking action over your minor slips of the mind and destroying of the evidence we can't find. Our only interest is creating a case against these evil, evil union thugs. Although, given that representing your members is a heinous crime under our no longer work choices just looks like it laws, surely they could have found something to hit them with. But it is good to see the government proving... OK, they couldn't prove the case, but good to see they don't just concentrate on culling evil unions, because as they embark on a culling women campaign, the situation was clarified by the wit and wisdom of former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Erica Betts on the bosses. Haven't we got to wonder how Malcolm could have dropped such talent? Clarified. Sometimes women will win. Eric was all perspicacity. Sometimes uh, men will win. My God, Eric, brilliant, spot on. We'd never have thought, but yes, when we think about it, he's right. It's got to be one or the other. Thanks for that, Eric. On which, as election fever mounts, almost impossible to know where the True Blue Aussie Catalyst Review will throw its support, with two editorials this week feeding the confusion. 
Coalition Business Must Expose Labour Policy Deceits. Hmm, no clue there. Labour, by the way, is what they call the Socialist Party. Then, Labour is ramping up active hostility to business. Again, impossible to see which way they're going, but wish they'd told us which bit of Socialist Party policy is active hostility to business. <laughs> if only. Obviously an evil clandestine socialist plot the capitalist review has uncovered that we have missed completely. It highlighted a quote from its own editorial I imagine they considered rhetorical. Can more taxes and the CFMEU do the job of business in running the economy? Forget the tax bit, but the second bit, the CFMEU, the answer would be yes. Prompting our rhetorical question, what chance the evil CFMEU or any militant union running the show if the socialists happen to win? Well, Eric and his successor as Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Michaelia Kosh, the workers, have warned of just that. Vote Socialist and John Setka, the face of union evil painted by Lord Rupert of Wapping and adopted by Malcolm and the team, would be the Minister for Non-Caring Evil Union Relations, demanding the Socialist Party dissociate itself from such evil. And in an interview this morning, it would be Minister Brendan No didn't quite dissociate itself, but didn't quite associate itself either. We represent workers, he boasted, after discussing the needs of caring employers. Well, I did paraphrase the, paraphrase the last bit to praise his long circumvention of the question. Poor Eric and McCallio and the whole Malcolm team can't believe that one side of the industrial relations equation would control and determine government policy. By the way, Eric's stunningly incisive either a man or a woman comment came during an interview in which he was distancing the government by about eight light years from the prosecution of the union non-criminals. Nothing to do with the Royal Commission, all down to the pejorative Dan State Government, which in turn distanced itself by about nine light years. We also caught up with the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Duffer, as he was winding up his interview, well, agreeable chat with the Sydney shock jock whose probing in-depth interrogations he regards as his press commitments. Uh, Pete, these African athletes seeking refugee status, uh, what's the story? These are like, you know, no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people who, you know, like... Look, sorry to interrupt, but they came by plane? Uh, these are like, you know, no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal uh, plane people who, you know, like, have broken the law. Uh, but they're legally seeking asylum. There are no legal, you know, asylum seekers. They are taking advantage, you know, like of our goodness, our hospitality, our, you know, like humanity. And look, I'm sick of these fake news suggestions that I like do not treat illegal boat and, uh, and plane people, you know, properly. Let me assure you, we treat all of these like people equally. We, we do not discriminate when it comes to, like, you know, illegal asylum seekers. Uh, thanks, Constable. Uh, pleasure, like. Uh, OK, moving on. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, what was that, Pete? Do you want us to be overrun, you know, like, by blacks? There's not a racist bone in my body, but do you, like, want us to be overrun by blacks? 
but, but Pete, this land was 100% black before we invaded. What invasion? I'm sick of hearing that. You know, word. Civilization landed here on Australia Day, 1788, uh, whatever, and created the, like, multicultural, you know, everyone's welcome country we enjoy. The blacks were racist. Now we all, you know, get on together, including asylum seekers. They get on together. <laughs> they have, like, you know, no choice. They're all together. <laughs> See, this shows, like, they don't want to integrate with, like, us. Okay, thanks again, Pete. Pleasure. You know, like, finally, as the US of the UN of the US of the world can comprehend how evil North Korea could even be mildly upset about the US of holding train killer exercises on its border to practice invading it, big supremo Donald Trample the poor's security through train killing advisor John Beltham promised that if North Korea obeyed every order from the US of, the US of would not conduct its finely honed practice of regime change for the good of the people of course saying it would not do to the bloke with the idiot haircut what it did to Gaddafi in Libya interesting that because John must have forgotten the US was always denied it had anything to do with the demise of Gaddafi and we all believed it because we always believe everything that honourable lot says so are they all all honourable men good afternoon and good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Healy and that time for tomorrow is 9am when you can hear Kevin and his friends talk about all sorts of environmental issues. It's called City Limits and it goes until 10 o'clock, not to be missed on 3CR. It's that time of year again. It's Radiothon. And out of the blue, we're running our annual fundraising trivia night. It's on Wednesday the 23rd of May at 6pm at Highlander Bar in the city. So jump on our Facebook page, Out of the Blue, for more information and tickets. Hope to see you there. Come along and have some fun. The culmination of six weeks of protest from Land Day to the 70th anniversary of the Nakba, the catastrophe was over 100 Palestinians dead and many thousands injured by live bullets, rubber bullets, tear gas canisters as they protested their inhumane incarceration in the tiny Gaza Strip and demanded their legitimate right of return to their homeland. Yesterday I spoke with Professor Bassam Daly, the Vice President of the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. And I asked him first to talk about Nakba and his own family and the consequences up to this day. Yes, 70 years ago, my family were one of the, I guess, lucky ones. Uh, Their village was not destroyed. As you know, more than 400 villages uh, were destroyed. The majority of my family fled to the mountains uh, and to other villages to take shelter from the advancing army at the time. And uh, my grandmother actually was uh, was sick uh, with cancer and she could not leave, so she was left behind, bedridden, sort of to fend for herself, really, because we couldn't take her uh, with him. 
They returned uh, a few days after uh, some agreement with the head of the village at the time that uh, you know, we surrender if you want, although there weren't much resistance in our village itself. And, uh, and the family sort of uh, lived under military occupation until 67. Uh, they also helped uh, absorb a lot of the other uh, internally displaced people from surrounding villages uh, that were destroyed uh, and their land um, declared uh, military zones, so, so they couldn't go back to it. It was quite a tragic sort of um, circumstances that they relayed uh, over the years. Is your family dispersed around the world? The cousins of my uh, father and grandfather actually ended up uh, in neighboring countries. They currently, um, I think they spread in six countries all over the world. Some we can see, some we can't. Those in Lebanon, uh, we don't have any chance to see. Those in Jordan, uh, there was opportunity for us to visit after there was a peace deal with Jordan. Thanks for social media these days, sort of we keep it looped in touch with them to know what, what's happening with them. But, uh, yeah, families were torn apart as part of that. Uh, another story to do with my family, which is, is that um, in the First World War One, uh, my great-grandfather was taken uh, by the Turks uh, to fight because he didn't have any money to sort of pay himself out. And somewhere between Lebanon and Syria, something happened to the train and uh, he uh, was lost or killed or... And my great-grandmother, actually, who lived uh, about 30, 40 years, lamenting what happened to him. She doesn't know why her husband never came back, and she became basically, um, you know, widowed from trying to fend for her uh, four children at the time. This is the environment they were living in was really uncertain well before. Obviously, there was a lot of uh, skirmishes, and then uh, and then the occupation, which made it really even worse, yeah. Have you been able to return to Palestine? Yes, um, my family is uh, is from the Galilee, um, uh, not too far from uh, Akko or Akka. And uh, as a holder of uh, an Israeli passport, it was easier for me to get in and out. Uh, the rest of my family still live in there. As you know, 20% of Israeli citizens are indigenous uh, Palestinians who actually stayed. And uh, part of those who actually went... Uh, displaced and you know, became refugees in Portland. So for me, it's a little bit easier, uh, although my family and myself, when I was living there, they are treated as second-class citizens. 52 different laws uh, directly or indirectly discriminate against them. Uh, but uh, they uh, strongly believe that uh, they belong to the land, and having sort of over the years lived under different occupations, uh, they are convinced that this is where they want to be, and this is uh, this is where they, they they're part of the terrain, they're part of the environment, they're part of uh, the furniture, if you want, and hence uh, they're not going anywhere. This is uh, this is where they want to be. The focus for the past six weeks has been on Gaza. Many Australians have difficulty, or would have difficulty, in comprehending what daily life must be like for the people existing on that tiny strip of land called Gaza? I think the, the most salient um, point now, especially this uh, great march of return, is that more than uh, 70% of the population are refugees. In other words, these people who uh, fled in 48 and sometimes in 67 and ended up in the Gaza Strip. It's a tiny piece of land. There isn't a lot of um, water and uh, resource uh, uh, challenged and uh, 
and add to all of that is this ongoing siege from 2007 until until today. The UN said that uh, by, if nothing changes by 2020, uh, the Gaza Strip will be uh, uninhabitable in a way. It's only two, two years from, 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 uh, from now. The unemployment is 43%, 95% of the water is undrinkable. More than 50% of the children surveyed says they uh, don't have the will to live. I mean, it's, it's, it's dark in every sense, so if you could think about it. Um, uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, it's highly populated area. There's now the latest survey. There's around 1.8 million plus people live in the Gaza Strip, and we describe it as the biggest prison in the world. I have to say that uh, Egypt is also complacent in maintaining uh, the siege of Gaza, and uh, as well as Israel, which people can go and fish, so they have control over land, air, and uh, and sea and control what goes in and goes out of the Gaza Strip uh, to an extent that they're calculating the calories uh, people need not to starve in a way, uh, which is an absolute cruelty in a way. And the Palestinians, uh, in, uh, the leaders in Gaza say that we're only getting uh, 35% of our needs, and uh, hence, you know, they build these tunnels and, uh, and other things to find ways to actually be able to uh, survive, really. And the, an interesting point is the median age in the... Uh, and the Gaza Strip is 17, which basically means it's uh, a very relatively young population. No, nothing but the occupation, and some of them only the siege, in a way. And uh, they do have access to Internet, and uh, they can see how the rest of the world is living. And you would imagine what sort of frustration this gives them and, uh, and how uh, unhappy about they are about the situation and, and what Israel is doing to them. What's in it for Egypt to blockade the southern parts? Egypt receives the second largest uh, aid from the U.S. after Israel. It's estimated anywhere between 3 and $4 billion a year, and most of it goes to maintain their military. And in return, uh, Egypt sort of um, does what the U.S. wants them to do. There's um, the Notably, by the way, even when Morsi was in power, as uh, somebody from sort of the Islamic Brotherhood, which um, Hamas, which has control over Gaza, they also belonged to, the borders would not sort of open. The Farah crossing, uh, Rafah crossing, I'm sorry, was was not open either in a way. So the maintaining uh, the blockade of Gaza is something that the U.S. are actively involved in. Collaboration between Egypt and uh, and Israel, it has been ongoing. When the Sisi came to power after sort of jailing most of the things that happened in there, they accused Hamas of being responsible for the trouble in Egypt. Not enough that Hamas is living at the siege, it's supposedly, you know, plotting a revolution and overthrowing of the government in Egypt in a way, which is ridiculous, really. The um, Egyptians are playing um, a negative role. They have some major issues in the uh, Sinai Peninsula where uh, some Islamic radical elements have uh, infiltrated, you know, fathers from ISIS and other, and uh, they were launching some attacks on Egyptian uh, soldiers as well as uh, in a couple of times in Israel itself. So um, Egypt is trying to maintain a tight control over Sinai. They don't want that. But if I'm the, the Gaza Strip to sort of to go to the Sinai, 
Although most people who are actually prosper of usually want to go somewhere else, not necessarily sort of to Egypt itself in a way. They want to go and study, or going to go and work in the Gulf, or they're going to go and get uh, health treatments. Not that these people are going to leave Gaza and settle in Egypt as such. Talk about the role of the Israeli so-called defence force over the last six weeks on this so-called border between Gaza and Israel. This is not a border. It's an armistice line. Israel doesn't define its border, by the way. It's the only country in the world that doesn't define its borders. The Israeli army have this mantra, I believe, is that um, the only way, in a way, to respond to anything the Palestinians do is through overwhelming uh, force. Uh, apparently, that's the only way it will happen. Uh, I'm not sure where the evidence comes uh, over the years. Uh, but... Um, Simply, they barricaded the snipers, uh, sat on uh, on these um, uh, small um, piles of dirt that they created next to the separation fence, and they were shooting unarmed Palestinians directly on the in the head, in the chest, or on the in the in the foot, and uh, they are unapologetic, apologetic for it. They admitting that they they aiming to uh, to hurt people. They actually shooting at kids and shooting at, uh, they killed um, two clearly marked uh, journalists. They killed six six children. And they injured 10,000 people. 10,000 people were injured in this. So we're shooting indiscriminately, including uh, from uh, from a tank uh, on the borders. And uh, they sort of, you know, fired a shell into, into the demonstrators. I think the reason uh, Israel and, uh, and the uh, Israeli military uh, can do that and will do it again it's because there's no price to pay. Rather, the UN Human Rights Commission uh, decided that it would want to investigate, and yet Israel is not going to cooperate. And that was the way many times before, and there's no price to pay. Simply, they could kill 106 people, injured 10,000, and get away with it. It's not only that, it's the, the deliberate crippling of young men by shooting them in the legs and shooting them in the feet so that they will probably never walk again. Believe it or not, they're sort of arguing that uh, in uh, this way, you know, they're being, uh, they're being moral in a way. So we, don't shoot, we didn't shoot him in the head, we shot him in the leg in a way, including kids, of course. Look, uh, the brutality of, uh, of the Israeli army is well documented. And uh, it, the, the government is giving him a free hand to do it. Uh, there was a case uh, a few weeks back where a soldier was taken to court Mostly, by the way, they only take into court because there is uh, video evidence. If usually there isn't any, then, you know, there's radio thoughts that even better. And then the other the defense of one of these soldiers is uh, that previous uh, soldiers shot Palestinians and they weren't prosecuted. Why are you prosecuting me? This is his defense. Is that this is the norm? Why, why am I being singled out? You know, in other words, you know, um, I have the license to shoot to kill uh, without a reason in a way. The, Palestinian population, basically, uh, are being hunted down like mosquitoes, and the international community simply giving Israel an exception. I'm really, really shocked with the Arab government's position on this. Um, uh, only uh, two days ago, the UN Human Rights Commission, they voted to, to investigate, it was adopted, and uh, these two countries who opposed it, and that's the US and Australia, which really puzzles me. Why is an investigation 
something the Australian government doesn't want. What is uh, applying the uh, rule of law is not a, something that the Australian government would support. Something actually uh, really sort of bothers me quite a bit, uh, especially that when we were campaigning to be uh, elected, uh, we saying who better, apparently our uh, foreign minister says, who better to sort of look after human rights uh, other than us. Well, if this is the way we're going to react, if this is the way that if, if an investigation is something that we don't want, I wonder where, where Australia's values are and I wonder where this government's moral uh, compass is in a way. Have we sold out to the Israeli government and to the uh, Zionist lobby in Australia? I mean, it's something really, really sort of uh, hurts me to the core that, that an Australian government would do that. There are so many ties now between Israel and Australia, especially with defence industries and things like that. Yes, um, they've been working on it uh, for, uh, for a long time. They're trying to find all these commonalities between uh, Israel and Australia. And there is commonalities where you know, this is a settler colonial project, no matter how you look at it, and that both countries are oppressing the indigenous people who've been uh, living in the land before. Uh, the white people are out, if you want. The increased ties is still relatively minuscule, although it's increasing over time. And supposedly, you know, our uh, security forces uh, have a lot to learn from the Israelis. I wonder what we're going to learn. We're going to learn that if we find a, uh, a soccer player, as, as Israel did, and uh, a promising soccer player will shoot him uh, five times in the, in the foot, is this what we're going to learn? Are we going to learn how to shoot kids in the head or in the leg instead of the head? Or what? Are we going to learn how to fire uh, tear gas canisters at the uh, medical tent and kill an eight-month-old girl? I mean, I'm, I'm wondering what we're going to learn out of this. Really. Supposedly, you know, this is good for our security. Well, I don't want the security. What's going to come from such a cruel and, uh, country and, and it, it have all these practices in its circle? And into all of this comes the move of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Yes, uh, apparently Trump administration is uh, helping the peace process, or helping bring the parties together by taking unilateral actions. There's a station now apparently in uh, in, in, uh, in Jerusalem named after Mr. Trump. I think uh, this suits him quite well. I think I'm just going for him, at least Israel recognizes uh, his madness. I think um, sometimes you, you, you could see positive things out of negatives in a way. Now, with the, what, what they're calling an embassy now in Jerusalem is really a consulate building that uh, was there before, which just they changed the, um, the sign basically to say it's an embassy. Obviously, the um, decision uh, in itself and its political implication is way beyond just a building in a way. But um, this will, will, will help no one in a way. This is just... Um, Pantry to the Israeli side, it's uh, appeasing uh, the uh, couple of billionaires that uh, donated to Trump campaign and his promise to do that. Uh, what really sort of um, uh, also surprises me and worried me is that uh, the U.S. is one of those countries uh, that passed Resolution 242 and 338, which says that these are occupied lands and, uh, and that um, they now sort of acting against the you know, resolutions they voted for. In other words, it's all right to ignore uh, resolutions you voted for and to do uh, go 
have you know interaction which always suits you because you know you promised somebody something or because you know they paid you for it. I wonder what other smaller companies would do in in, in consequence as well. And also, if you want to uphold um, international law anywhere else in the world, now you have examples where you actually you just ignored it altogether. Now, obviously, as we all know, it's not the first time the U.S. does that, unfortunately. In terms of where where this to the Palestinians, I mean, the allegation on the ground is that um, Jerusalem is almost uh, sort of annexed uh, from from the rest of the occupied territories, with all its four hundred thousand residents, I have to add, uh, amounting to almost 40% of the Palestinian economy. So um, these people are given uh, permanent residency, they're not citizens. They are, the Palestinian Authority can't reach them and give them the services, the uh, Israeli aren't treating them as third class perhaps, and they, they're living in the limbo in a way, and no, no wonder we saw some despite acts of uh, knifing and, and, uh, and violent acts uh, from the youth in particular who's, who see the injustice in front of their eyes and feel helpless to do anything about it. I mean, to that extent, uh, the, the Israeli control over the East Jerusalem, to an extent, they arrested people who were doing the survey. PA sort of uh, commissioned the survey of the citizens in a census. And uh, and then they arrested them and they, you know forced him out of the East Jerusalem because supposedly you know uh, it, it's not Palestinian uh, territory that uh, that uh, they can survey the people who are living in there. So it tells you something about uh, the, um, the way sort of uh, Israel sees um, the, the, the Palestinian issue and that they want to enforce their will and, uh, and their realities on uh, and enforce a solution rather than sort of negotiate. You mentioned that the UN Human Rights Office called for that independent and transparent investigation into the, the crimes of Israel. What about the rest of the world leaders? I think uh, Japan, uh, France and the UK abstained from the vote. Everybody else voted for it, as far as I could tell. Uh, the disheartening thing is that uh, calling for restraints from both sides wonder you know, uh, what restraint from the Palestinian side after being in this biggest prison since 2007 as the uh, organizer of, uh, of the protest says look you know, why are you expecting me to die slowly in my home and why why shouldn't I go and knock on my uh, prison walls in a way it's a very valid question these people are uh, dying slow death they're getting four hours of electricity a day the health system is, is crumbling. Um, you know, once there's no electricity, the sewage treatment is a problem. So they dying slow death, and, and hence, you know, they want to react. And yet the rest of the world sort of seems to be um, you know, ignoring this uh, ongoing uh, tragedy, bantering to the Israeli position one way or another. And everybody sort of uh, declares that Israel has the right to defend itself. Well, you know, sure. Well, isn't, shouldn't this be uh, extended to everyone rather than just Israel? Is Israel an exception in a way? Do the Palestinians have the right to defend themselves? Do the Palestinians have the right to protest? Do the Palestinians have the right to live free like any other country in the world? I think uh, there's a lot of uh, double standard. While we hear a little bit of uh, positive comments here and there from uh, selected leaders, I think the majority of the Western world seems to be... Uh, hostage to some sort of narrative which is making it harder to break through this sort of uh, impasse and the Palestinians still languishing uh, in, in these conditions.
Yes, as you said, Israel seems to be the exception. You couldn't imagine a situation like this happening in other parts of the world. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you've seen lots of uh, unfortunate incidents all over the world, and you see how the world reaction to it is. And yet, you know, when uh, 106 Palestinians are gunned down and 10,000 injured, that's not enough for the world to uh, you know, react and, uh, and to do something about it. And you wonder why, or you wonder why. Uh, the uh, rest of the way it doesn't see the Palestinians are humans. Uh, Robert Fisk just wrote an article says, when are we going to start treating the Palestinians as a people or as humans in a way? Because currently we're not in a way. And, and that really makes me sad and angry at the same time. I'd imagine you're very sad and angry, as many Palestinians or most of the Palestinians here in Australia and overseas are as well. Yes, um, uh, there's a lot of sense of frustration uh, there's a lot of sense of double standards uh, which you can't understand. You know, countries who um, present themselves as peace-loving, uh, fair goal like Australia, and uh, respecting human rights and so on, and suddenly when it comes to this particular issue, we throw all that away and, uh, and behave in a totally different manner. And, and this makes you sort of wonder why my people are being treated any differently. Uh, why aren't they being given uh, sort of uh, a fair go like everyone else? Uh, taking into account, in particular, that um, these same countries divided Palestine in the first place. They divided this land. They caused the problem. They accepted Israel and, uh, and recognized it and yet to recognize Palestine. So it's not like... Uh, so this is some feud that's been going for hundreds of years. It's actually a manufacturing problem that the um, majority of the world, countries in the world were actually an active participant in making it happen. Of course, it makes you angry to know that, you know, you cause the trouble and you're not trying to take any responsibilities. On the contrary, you're actually siding with our oppressors. Yeah, the, it, is, it is distressing and it is uh, sad to see what's happening and uh, see people come down. Innocent, innocent kids being shot 200, 300 meters from, from the border. How is this kid uh, uh, threatening the security of Israel? How? How? They, they're protesting in their own land. They're protesting on their own side. It is unfortunate, but that's the way it is, unfortunately. Thank you very much, Hassan. No worries, John. Much, much appreciated. And that's Professor Bassam Daly, who's the Vice President of the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network here in Australia, obviously. You are listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR, where the time now is 4.37. And a fundraising art exhibition opened last Saturday at the Steps Gallery, which is 62 Ligon Street in Carlton, just up from Trades Hall. It hasn't finished, it goes until Thursday, that's the 24th of May, and there are a great number of paintings, photography, printmaking, sculpture, drawings and illustrations by many names that you would know, Michael Lunig, Lynn Hovey, Arthur Boyd, Jeff Raglas, Terry Denton, many, many, many people who who have contributed to this War Never Again fundraising art exhibition and the proceeds are to help ICANN, the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, which won the Nobel Peace Prize last year. 
ask the Australian governments about that and they wouldn't know what you're talking about. And also Medical Association for the Prevention of War. So what you should do, there are lots of bargains there, apparently. So I would, if I was you, I'd get down to the Steps Gallery, 62 Ligon Street in Carlton. It's open from 11am until 4pm. So that's um, tomorrow and Thursday up until 4pm to see the art exhibition War Never Again. CR Radiothon 2018 Fight for Your Mic. The 3CR annual Radiothon fundraiser is almost here. From June the 4th to the 17th, we're asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate, call 039419 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 20. Fight for your mic. The election in Malaysia on the 9th of May is being hailed as a victory of the people of all races, finally putting an end to the 61-year rule of Omno and the demise of its leader, Najib Razak. On the phone to talk about what it all means is Lee Tan, a member of Bursai Australia. That's the Coalition for Free and Fair Elections. Firstly, I'd like to concentrate on the new Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed, described by one journalist as a pugnacious and uncompromising Prime Minister from 1981 to 2003. Others have less favourable descriptions of him. What's your view and... Can a leopard change its spots? Well, that's a good question because I think Malaysians had given him another opportunity to redeem himself. He's apologised for his past wrongs, some of which is probably unforgivable, especially for people who've been detained under him, you know, using the Draconian Internal Security Act in the past, and that included members of my own family. Immediate family has been affected in different ways. Yeah, and some of whom had severe mental health issues that still persisting today. On the other hand, if you look at the bigger picture, he's actually done something which every Malay, well, many Malaysians are kind of, you know, willing to, to forgive, and that is to stand up against an even worse Prime Minister that's in, you know, the, the ousted, recently ousted Prime Minister Najib Razak with his um, scandals and cold-blooded murders and so on and so forth. So in that sense, the Malaysians are willing to give him another chance. He did say that he's only going to serve one or two years, and in these one or two years, he's going to try and change, well, he's going to reform everything that he's undermined to put back democracy and, you know, all the uh, basic tenets of development and democracy back in play, into place, including a fairer economic system that will actually benefit the people and not the kind of 
economic system through rent-seeking and patronage, which, you know, was very much part of the old system, if you want to put it that way. But hasn't it been like that since the British left? Yes, I mean, when the British left, of course, you know, much of the country's most lucrative business has been in the hand of British with a few elites, you know, from different so-called ethnic groups, particularly the Malay, you know, taking over, and the new economic policy that favours the Muslim Malay um, is one example where, you know, some people criticise it as an apartheid system. I mean, I... I do believe and and felt strongly that there is a need for better distribution. No specific ethnic group should control or have more dominance in the country's economic system. But, you know, that has to change. I mean, it shouldn't be based on race. It should be based on socioeconomic background. And, I mean, if it is true that one particular race is kind of not getting the economic benefits, then, you know, if it is done on the social economic background, you know, that should cover it anyway, proportionally. So I don't see why that race-based policy, which is called the new economic policy, should be in place. The new government under Mahathir again has said that, yes, they will still, you know, give preferential treatment to the Malays. People are still waiting to see exactly what that means. It really has become too too kind of overly favouring the Malay to the point that the other racial groups haven't been able to take part in the in the education system and so on and so forth. And that's created a lot of imbalance and created a brain drain for Malaysia. Yeah. The election itself most pundits, I believe, including mm. yourself, believe that there was no way that, that Najib would lose. When we think that Najib will have a, an upper hand, it was because of his electoral gerrymandering and also the usual vote rigging. But this time, the people actually got together. I mean, we had one slim hope that it won't be, you know, Najib won't win. And on the ground in Malaysia and all over the world, within and amongst Malaysian diasporas, we've gotten ourselves organized and mobilized to make sure, even though the election is gerrymandered, you know, we do everything we can to scrutinize it and, you know, to call the government out to prevent vote rigging. And I think we've done that very successfully. The couple of groups in Malaysia, particularly one called Invoke, set up by one of the opposition leader, young leader, Rafizi. He sold his house and set up this group called Invoke and trained a lot of people. I think we're talking about hundreds of people in electoral monitoring, really skilled the people up. I mean, in the past, the opposition people, a party has done that, but this time it's done at a larger scale, knowing that Najib's going to really rig the vote. And that really pays off. In the end, the election results weren't <laughs> formally confirmed by the Electoral Commission, but, you know, the electoral monitors using their iPhone were able to take photos of the vote counts in every polling centre. That really has changed 
the scene. They couldn't rig the vote anymore because a lot of vote rigging happened after the vote count. Then they bring in new boxes and what have you. But this time, these trained electoral monitors, the local monitors, they work in teams. And whenever they see anything strange, they started to call the police. And they started to, you know, call back to their team leader or their party or whatever. And that stopped any attempt to rig the vote. And and also the overseas Malaysian diasporas who are eligible to vote, they went by en masse, despite the fact that it was a, a snap election. They had very little time to prepare, but they booked their flight, you know, those who couldn't go back. For the first time, the Electoral Commission actually opened up voting by poster yeah, for the, the countries that are outside of Malaysia and also not the near neighbor country. So people were doing vote, poster voting, even though many of them didn't receive their ballot paper in time, but they actually organized through social media, Facebook and Twitter, uh, more Facebook and WhatsApp, to get people to courier their votes back, even though they know, you know, they, they, they complete strangers. Everybody who's going back, or more or less, carries somebody else's votes as well, which is really interesting. And that made a difference, I think, because there's so many Malaysian diasporas overseas. Yeah, and I think that really shocked Najib. He didn't think, didn't expect that. And for those near-neighbor countries like Thailand, Singapore, in uh, Indonesia, they weren't allowed to do postal voting, but they made every attempt to get back to Malaysia as early as they can to pass their vote by the uh, the polling date. So that's all really quite fascinating. Without the trained electoral observers or monitor, and you know they're very well trained, they're very motivated and and empowered to take action, and that really has made a, a lot of difference to this election. And also on another twist of the story, the electoral boundary redrawing by Najib's government actually in the end worked against Najib because it is, a, you know, that re, the electoral delineation was done on the basis and on the assumption that the Malays, whether it's rural or urban, are more likely to vote for the incumbent at that time, which was Barisan National, UMNO, you know, some of these established parties that are on the side of Najib. However, what happened is because of Mahathir's entry into the campaign and also because of um, a split within UMNO, the Malay and also through the work of Invoke Rafizi and his team, they actually did a lot of talks in the rural area, in the Malay heartland, which has never been possible under in previous year because um, the Amno Sats would come out to prevent people from entering those so-called Malay heartland. But this time, because there's a split in Amno, it is becoming possible. Well, it, it was possible for Razizi and his team to go in and talk to the people about the uh, one MDB's financial scandal, about all the other corrupt practices and activities of Najib. And that has helped swing the vote from for some of the Malay heartland to the opposition. And that's how they actually won the election in the end. 
What about the sultans and the power that they had? They were supporting yes. Najib, weren't they? Some of them were. Some of them weren't. I think the Johor, the sultan of Johor has always been a very outspoken critique of Najib. The Pahang sultan, because they all belong to that traditional Malay elite group, um, of course, you know, is an ardent supporter and they're kind of interdependent on each other. I mean, with, with the... Um, Linus Project, for example, it seems that the Sultan was the one who actually sold the land to raise money for himself. Yeah, and that, of course, then was endorsed by the, the federal government under, under Najib. So, and, and there are some Sultans who dislike Mahathir because he's actually taken power away from them in the past through constitutional reform. So they're a bit angry with him. But in the end, the Sultan knew that because the people in Malaysia supported Mahathir. The Agong, which is you know the, the the head of the Southerns, who kind of becomes the king of the country, he had no choice but to sign you know to to actually swear Mahathir in. He that, it took ages. It took about two days, which is very unusual. Because you know if it had been Najib, it would be like that night itself after the election. It took like nearly 48 hours, and people were quite nervous because in that period, Najib can easily use the National Security Council Act to declare a state of emergency if there's been any unrest. And, you know, this is the thing I really like about this election in Malaysia. People were so well organized. They've warned each other of not reacting to any rumors. So as soon as there's photos of um, unrest happening, there'll be an, a counter message going around very quickly to say, you know, this photo you see, this is that, you know, do not react, do not go out, stay where you are, do not celebrate. We know we won, but if you celebrate, if you cause, if there's any more unrest, it'll be an excuse from the jeep to declare a state of emergency and impose martial law. So, all that message became very, very quickly spreading around, and people observed to that. They've learned how to distinguish between provocative news and also to act responsibly and act calmly, which, and that really helped. And that's why this time, even the tactic by Najib's gang, using Cambridge Analytica, buying for um, Russian bots, to set up Twitter's messages, all of that had not actually had any impact because Malaysians actually learn how to deal with that this time. And that's a lesson that can be learned by many other social movements around the world. And I'm, I'm really keen to write about that later. At the moment, I'm still tied up with quite a few urgent post-election follow-ups. What part did the decision by Mahathir to get rid of the GST play? Oh, yeah, that, that too is very important. The GST has actually hit rural Malays and the lower socioeconomic class hit quite severely. It's very, very unpopular. And, uh, of course, you know, I think in every country, if, if a party say they're going to scrap the GST, they have a very high chance of winning, I'll say. Yeah, especially in the economic hard time when people's incomes actually drastically reduce, high unemployment and so on and so forth. Yeah, that definitely has a huge impact. But the main thing is like, people just want to get rid of Najib because he's been so corrupt, he's, 
he's stolen so much money from the country and he's created so many scandals. Malaysians are feeling like they're being shamed so much. And these elections just turn all of that around. And they can feel proud to be Malaysians again for a change. And well, he's said he doesn't want to take part in the, the top echelons of the government for a while. What was his past? He was part of Mahathir, wasn't he? Yes, he was the deputy prime minister and also the finance minister before he got the sack and got thrown into the jail because he was challenging Mahathir too much. I mean, mind you, you know, Mahathir is no saint. He has been pretty corrupt as well, but he's just able to cover his track better. And Najib, but he's not as blatant and as um, and as shameless as Najib, I say. He's got some integrities with professional politicians. What about his wife, Anwar? Okay, one Aliza. She's now given the post of deputy prime minister because Anwar's been in jail. He wasn't elected, so he really cannot take up any of that senior position until the next election. I'm not sure how they're going to play that. One interesting aspect of this coming election, uh, this this particular new government, is the advisory committee made up of some elders, so-called. I'm not sure at this stage whether Anwar is going to be part of that, but there's some key people in there, including a development economist, which is quite interesting. Yeah, that's not ha- ever happened in Malaysia. I think for the time being. Wadah Siza will be part of the inner cabinet. And also Anwar's daughter, Nuru, she's an MP as well. She's not given any ministerial position, but she'll no doubt have some influence in the politics of uh, Malaysia. So Anwar will be, you know, because of what happened, uh, there's a lot of things, uh, procedural issues that need to be sorted out before he can be at the helm of Malaysian politics. And whether or not he's going to pursue that, you know, we, we're still not sure. What about the repressive laws that are still in place in Malaysia? Yes. Any likelihood that that could change? Definitely. There are many NGOs involved in this election, and some of them, like Maria Chin Abdullah, who used to be heading that birthday or the clean and uh, transparent election and government uh, movement all around the world and in Malaysia as well. She's now an MP, and she has a background in SWARAM, which is a Malaysian human rights organization, and they've been campaigning for decades to try and get rid of those draconian and repressive laws. So I'll say that the push for those to be abolished will continue. And we from Global Brasse movement will definitely push for that. And Ambiga as well. She was another leader of the Bursa movement. While we're not sure whether she's going to get any senior position in government, she'll definitely continue to layers with the government uh, to make sure that those repressive laws are being abolished eventually. There's so many things to be done as well, yeah. It looks as though Najib is being grounded, not allowed out of the country. Mm. What about his cronies? There must be lots just like him. <laughs> The thing is, with the Malaysian political dynamic and culture, once the leader topper, the other people, the followers, the cronies, they'll either crawl to the opposition or the, you know, like the new leading political party and leaders, 
or they just lose their power base and their economic base as well. You know, one of the decisions of the new government to abolish highway tolls is probably a good example of how, you know, the new government is trying to get rid of some of the crony companies because all the tolls companies in Malaysia are very much linked to the so-called crony companies. Yeah, so I say some of them will have less economic base uh, to be influential. I'm not saying that the new government is going to be 100% clean. I mean, there's still a lot of old guards that are very used to this rent-seeking and corrupt culture. It will take a long time, but hopefully, you know, with a stronger anti-corruption commission, with a much more professional military and police force, and with more member of parliaments who are actually decent, it will change the dynamic slowly. I think the other factor that we are quite concerned with is um, the Islamic Party, PAS. PAS actually won quite a few seats and a lot of, pop- a lot of votes. Many of the East Peninsula Malaysian states in particular, uh, Pahang, Trunganu and Kelantan, PAS actually won the majority of the seats and also the popular votes in those places. You know, we are quite guarded and we're concerned, you know, that this change is not going to lead to fundamentalism rising up in Malaysia or the radical Islamists. Yeah, that's something which I, I, I think Mahathir is aware of as well and wary of. Moderate Malays are not, or moderate Muslim are not into fundamentalism. And because of that, he appointed an Islamic scholar who's more from the liberal, moderate section, to become the education minister. Although that has actually sparked quite a lot of outrage amongst the non-Muslim Malaysian, and there's a petition that's going to be, like, that's going around and collected that something like 40,000 or 50,000 signatures in a few days. We don't know what's panning out, you know, from that yet. But um, really hoping that Masli, this Islamic scholar is actually one of the liberal-minded ones who um, will deal with the fundamentalists and the radicals without taking too drastic an action, but not to appease them at the same time. One of the big concerns of yours Mm. is the environment in Malaysia. What are your hopes or concerns at this moment? Right. The good news is that Buzia Saleh, the MP for Kuantan, near where the Linus refinery plant is situated, has called a press conference together with another opposition, or then previously opposition MP, to declare that they, to announce that they will review the license and approve for Linus Rails refinery. But, you know, there's actually a lot that needs to happen before that. They really have to review Malaysia's own environmental law and policy, which are too vague, general, and, you know, a bit weak. Um, it's not specific enough to deal with many of the issues. So I'm actually going to write to them with some proposals and suggestions as to how they can actually tighten that before they even review some of these licenses. It's not just Linus, there are many others as well that are polluting, but the Linus case has a radioactive component in, in it. 
which most of the others didn't have. So yeah, I mean I'm hopeful, but I'm not saying that it's gonna you know happen necessarily. We just have to keep pushing it. I'd like to also say something in Australia. One of the um, methods that we're following up is the money laundering issue. Much of the corrupt money from Malaysians actually ended up in Australia, invested in properties and all sorts of different, you know, assets. We really like the Australian government to investigate some of these uh, suspicious dealings and transactions. There have been media reports about it, but the government has done nothing. And also, ANZ Bank holds 20% of M-Bank in Malaysia. And M-Bank is a bank that has actually facilitated the 1MDB money laundering exercise. M-Bank is also the one that allowed Najib to set up an account where the money eventually, you know, went back. So ANZ Bank has to share some of that blame as well. And the Royal Commission that's happening now on the misconduct in the banking sector should seriously look into money laundering to make sure that Australian financial institutions have to necessarily safeguard to, you know, prevent money laundering and, and also, yeah, all the Panama paper and all that, the tax haven, all of that should have been dealt with as well. Because otherwise, people are evading tax through some of these loopholes. Corruptions are happening in developing countries, you know, by dictators, by authoritarian leaders. Australia shouldn't be facilitating that or supporting it by giving them that kind of um, sanctuary or safe havens and so on and so forth. And another matter, too, is one of the murderers of a very high-profile case involving a translator involved in a... uh, another corrupt submarine purchase deal between Malaysia and France. The the person who's being murdered is Atantuya Sharubu, a Mongolian translator. She was very brutally murdered, and everyone say that it's linked with the Prime Minister because of that corrupt scandal. They were trying to cover up, and so they killed her, and she was pregnant at that time. And one of the bodyguards, I think of Najib, kind of in his sworn statement had said that the baby actually belongs to Najib. So it's all, you know, it's quite scandalous and it's been in headline news in Malaysia and also in Mongolia. One of the fugitives who murdered Atantuya, the Mongolian model, is actually seeking asylum and being detained in Villawood Detention Centre in Sydney. Now I think they should, Australia should look into that to make sure that justice is actually delivered to Asantuya. And the Mongolian president has recently asked the new government to re-examine that case and make sure that justice is actually delivered to Asantuya and her family as well. And that was Lee Tan, who's um, a member of Versailles Australia. And Versailles is a, a grouping of NGOs in Malaysia and worldwide seeking free and fair elections in Malaysia and maybe they might have got them this time but that's Lee Tan and on the program next week Lee Tan will be talking a little bit about the recent Timor-Leste elections which took place three days after the Malaysian elections
Coming up to six minutes past five, we'll hear in a moment from Peter Murphy about Sister Patricia Fox, who's facing deportation in the Philippines, and then May 1968 in Paris. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock, and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has a specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Back in mid-April, 71-year-old Australian nun, Sister Patricia Fox, was arrested by six immigration officials at their mission house in Quezon City, threatened with deportation for political activities. More than a month later, Sister Patricia remains in the Philippines, and this morning I spoke with trade union and human rights activist Peter Murphy. Peter, we don't know a lot about Sister Patricia, except that she was living in the Philippines, has been there for nearly three decades. Can you tell us about her and why at this time she's been targeted by Duarte? I've met her several times in the Philippines at uh, conferences and also at rallies. I don't really know a lot about her, her background, but it's true. She, she started working in the Philippines in 1991, you know, so it's going to be 28 years this year. She, she would be like part of the furniture in the, the Philippines church sector and especially the, the part that works with farmers. So, um, you know, it is a big shock when somebody who's just been there forever is somehow singled out. The government attempts to expel them. Had she been singled out at any other time? No, no, she's never come under any attention in all those years. So, you know, that's also, I think she found it quite a surprise that this happened. But she's not the only one, is she? Well, uh, there's been a, a sort of a different scale of, of uh, attacks on foreigners uh, over the last, say, decade or so. There was a priest similar to, to Sister Pat, an Italian priest working in Mindanao who'd been there for over 30 years and uh, he was assassinated by a military hit squad. 
that seems to be associated with his support for local communities who didn't want mining and forestry in their ancestral lands. Another case uh, is a fellow called Willem Geertman, who was uh, a Dutch lay volunteer, who I'm not sure how long he'd been in the Philippines for, but at least you know, 15 or 20 years. He was also executed in the street uh, by a hit squad about four years ago. So, again, the people were very, very surprised that that happened. And uh, these two cases, you know, are, ext- are very extreme, of course, and uh, I think put everybody on a bit of an alert, including, I expect, Sister Pat. But uh, she's the one, the next one down, I think, in terms of the severity of the situation. There are others right now who are being threatened with deportation, but not in the same high-profile way. Well, let's look at why this is happening at this time. It's a strange shifting moment in Filipino uh, history in that I think President Duterte represents a extreme authoritarianism and a reversion to the Marcos style or the Marcos approach to politics. And, of course, he's actually very closely associated with the Marcos family and uh, seems to be wanting... Marcos's son, known as Bongbong Marcos, to be the next vice president of the country. There's, there's still an ongoing election dispute from the 2016 election by Bongbong, and uh, somehow this has been kept alive all this time to give that option. So uh, I think uh, one part of uh, you know me would say that Duterte himself, as a person, is, is a insecure character, and uh, his his uh, reflex is to lash out violently against uh, problems and uh, to uh, shut up people. But he's also got other ways of operating. He's shown in his period as mayor of uh, Davao City. There is a negotiator there somewhere as well, someone who makes deals to avoid conflicts. But now as president, I think he's, he seems to be well out of his depth. The negotiator doesn't appear to be there at all. The trend right now is, you know, that the constitution of the Philippines itself is going to be changed, driven by Duterte, and uh, the prospect of a nationwide martial law, not only, you know, martial law not only in Mindanao but over the whole country, is also in prospect. You know, we we are really seeing a sort of backflip and turning back in history to 1972. That's sort of happening in 2018. And, you know, you can imagine that most Filipinos are having trouble catching up to it, to this situation and really even believing what they're seeing. But I think there's a growing sense of uh, real concern in the, in the society. And, you know, it's, it's, it's strange that, uh, you know, you can have priests being shot down, nuns being grabbed. Uh, that doesn't quite grab the attention that uh, chucking out the Chief Justice does. The Chief Justice was removed last week, and uh, I think that's that's brought into play another whole layer of society, realising that things are going really bad. And what was her supposed crime? She was appointed under the influence of the previous president, Aquino. That's, that's it. So I think she's perceived by Duterte as an anti-Duterte voice on the Supreme Court bench, a pro-Aquino, and there's quite a struggle going on. I, I think you can see between... The uh, Kino grouping in, in uh, elite politics in the Philippines and Duterte's grouping, Duterte being grouped with the, the Marcos uh, family, 
and uh, also with uh, former president, a disgraced president, Estrada, and also with uh, Gloria Arroyo. He seems to be cultivating a close relationship with Gloria as well. So there's a sort of one block around Duterte, and then there's a block around Aquino, who's really the son of, you know, Corazon Aquino and Benigno Aquino, still seen as some sort of holy family, even though he's, he's a dreadful president also. Where does that leave you and your comrades, Peter, who not regularly but do visit the Philippines and support the people? The last time I visited uh, the Philippines was in February this year to take part in an international solidarity mission very similar to the one that Sister Patricia Fox did in, in uh, April. When I landed in the Philippines, the immigration officer put me on notice by telling me that I had been seen at a rally in Mindanao in uh, November 2017. Uh, it was the oddest uh, experience, you know, uh, just having my passport checked to have the visa put in and so on. Yeah, we had a bit of a banter between that, that immigration officer and myself, and it was all very funny in a way, but uh, it was a very clear warning to me that I'm under intense uh, surveillance when I go to the Philippines, that uh, this information is shared through their system. So, you know, it won't stop me from going back, but uh, I think we, we should all realise that it's, it's really possible now for people to be regularly blocked at the airport and turned back um, or to be detained prior to departure, say, a few weeks later. So uh, this, this has been experienced by a few people now, mainly Filipino-Americans. And the situation for Sister Patricia Fox at the moment, where is she? Well, uh, she's in Manila and uh, she's uh, spoken out a little bit, uh, but very clearly that she's completely rejects all these allegations against her and uh, she's fighting the deportation case. 30 days given for her to leave the country I think runs out on the 28th of May, so that's next week. Uh, I think that because she's, uh, her, she and her lawyers have put in uh, statement, counter-statements, that these will have to be processed in the courts. And so I think there will be extensions and she won't be deported next, next week. But we'll see. Anything can happen because really President Duterte has personally identified himself with the removal of uh, Sister Pat he may well again, you know, intervene in the process, arbitrarily do something. So uh, let's, let's see. And there was another deportation of a, an official from the EU a few weeks ago? Yeah, just uh, around the same time that uh, just a couple of days before Sister Pat was detained in uh, April, the, um, the leader of the socialist group in the European Parliament also arrived in uh, the Philippines for a conference and uh, he didn't get past the airport either. So uh, he, he wasn't uh, going to an international solidarity mission, but he was going to a meeting convened by people that, uh, for whatever reason, President Duterte, you know, a political party that President Duterte doesn't like. So he was just <laughs> abruptly chucked out. This could be more to do with criticisms in the European Parliament uh, of uh, President Duterte. In, in general, the European parliamentary people have, have tended to go to the Philippines to visit those people associated with the former President Aquino and especially uh, uh, Leela de Lima, 
is a senator who's been arrested and detained for over a year now. People regularly go to visit her in jail. But uh, she, she of course, uh, is a celebrated case and is a really could, could be now considered a political prisoner, I think. But uh, there are so many people lower down in the pecking order. And the ones I'm mostly concerned about are the trade union leaders, the peasant leaders, and the indigenous people's leaders who who are actually being assassinated. The other other layer in society, which we could just simply refer to as the poor, in those people in poor, unorganised communities where the war on drugs is being waged in a very, you know, brutal, deadly way. And uh, there's, there's really a, a mountain of dead bodies already. And I think uh, estimates vary, but they're currently saying 13,000 people have been killed in, in just under two years in this uh, campaign. You know, the international community's response is, is there, but it's very quiet compared to the number of dead. You know, there's a sort of geopolitical protection given to President Duterte because he's seen as a US ally against China. It's actually part of an old pattern and uh, one which I hope Australian people can get more and more of a focus on uh, because this is our region. We are close to the Filipino people. We can do something to stop this. Australia can do something to change this situation. And the situation I'm in now? Yes, well, I think... Uh, We've had a, a story this week about the budget, the Australian budget, uh, which came down earlier this month, having, having a reference to a military operation in, in uh, the Philippines called uh, Augury, but no money. The money blacked out. People don't quite know what's going on, of course. It's uh, a secrecy thing, but because of the fighting in Marawi City last year, in the end, uh, the Australian government sent 80 special forces to the Philippines to train the Philippines military in urban warfare. The unfortunate thing about this is that trainers go into operations with their the trainees. This isn't really a sort of, a, you know, classroom situation we're talking about. We're, we're really seeing an escalation of Australian military involvement in fighting in, in Mindanao, which the Australian people are not being informed about and which it's pretty clear to me the Australian government doesn't understand at all and is only making worse a um, really terrible situation of land grabbing, oppression, killing of uh, civilian leaders, which uh, is quite abhorrent, I'm sure, to the values of uh, most Australian people. Yes, we, we've got an um, escalating problem there, you know, a, a, a region of the Philippines which has already been under martial law for over a year. The uh, prospect of, uh, like most, they say 75% of all the combat units of the Philippines Army is in Mindanao and that they're, you know, it's, it's like a sledgehammer for a, a little nut uh, in terms of Marawi City. But if you think about really strong opposition of uh, the indigenous people, of the farmers and uh, workers, and especially of the Moro people, to the various land grabbings that are going on, you can see that the, the Philippines army is really going to be used, it's being set up and built up to attack these people. Again, I think it's something that Australia should be opposing and not providing assistance for. You know, if there's 300,000 displaced people still from Marawi City, how many millions might there be? 
if this uh, continues to go in the uh, violent direction that it's taken so far. Are there any actions here in Australia to protest at what's happening in the Philippines? Uh, yes, uh, there's going to be a protest in uh, Sydney at the Philippines Consulate on this Friday uh, at 1 o'clock. And this one's called by a trade union alliance, an international trade union alliance of which Australian unions are part. It's called the Southern Initiative on Globalisation and Trade Union Rights. And uh, it's focused specifically against the growing dictatorship under President Duterte in the Philippines. One o'clock at uh, the corner of Wentworth Avenue and Goulburn Street in Sydney, the Philippines Consulate, this week on Friday. Thank you, Peter. Thanks very much, Dan. And that was Peter Murphy, trade union and human rights activist in Sydney, speaking about this situation, the dire situation, which only seems to get worse by the, the month in the Philippines. Never War Never Again, I'll give another plug for that exhibition, which is happening at the Steps Gallery, which is 62 Ligon Street in Carlton. You only have two more days to see it. That's tomorrow and Thursday between 11am and 4pm. It's an exhibition of paintings, photography, printmaking, sculpture, drawings by artists with that theme, War Never Again. And the proceeds for this exhibition are to go to ICANN, the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons and the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. So that's 62 Ligon Street in Carlton. It's on tomorrow and Thursday from 11 to 4. Go along and see what you can find. Apparently there are bargains to be had. Come and see Bart Willoughby's album, Resonance, live on June the 2nd at Fitzroy Town Hall. Doors open at 7pm and show starts at 7.30. Featuring all tracks from Bart Willoughby's latest album, Resonance, a combination of reggae, jazz, opera and Middle Eastern music in celebration of Reconciliation Week. Saturday, June the 2nd. Tickets available through tickyboo.com.au. Check out our Facebook page or website for further details. A 3CR supporter. CR Radiothon 2018 Fight for Your Mic. The 3CR annual Radiothon fundraiser is almost here. From June the 4th to the 17th, we're asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate, call 039419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radio from 2018. Fight for your mic. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR 855 AM Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Three CR are selling Kafia 
Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Finally on Tuesday Home Time, the tumultuous events of May 1968 in Paris, France. I'm joined by journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Nick, what was happening in France in the lead up to 1968? So looking back 50 years to the events in Paris and indeed across France in May 1968, that brought together a whole series of structural factors in the economy and the society and the culture that uh, came together at one explosive moment. Obviously, the economics of France and indeed most Western industrialised countries in the late 60s were coming towards the end of the long economic boom that came after the Second World War, um, where, you know, the economic weight of European countries, of the United States and others, went through a long capitalist boom after the war. But by the mid-70s, that was tailing off. So, you know, this was a peak of economic growth. And that affected a younger generation. You know, people talk about the baby boomers after the Second World War in the late 40s, a generation of people were born across the world, but particularly in France and other European countries, you know, whose parents returning from a war, a war where 20 million people were killed, there was literally a baby boom, you know, returning soldiers had families. And uh, by 1968, 20 odd years later, that generation were moving into adulthood, were moving into the universities particularly. And in France, that you know, generational issue was really important because France was governed by General de Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle, who'd been the World War II leader, had returned to power in 1958 uh, during the Algerian crisis. Uh, indeed, almost a military coup in Algeria was threatened and uh, the so-called Fourth Republic collapsed. You know, France had been governed by a series of republics uh, since the uh, revolution of uh, 1789 and the post-war governments were in total crisis because of constant defeat. You know, France had been occupied in 1940 by fascist Germany, by Nazi Germany, and uh, the the period of the resistance, the period of occupation of Vichy and so on had been a, a terrible period for French people. French armed forces had immediately gone into the war in the colonies, the massive mobilisation for movements for decolonisation in the post-war period, France had launched counter-revolutionary warfare against those movements, most famously in Indochina, um, in Vietnam. Uh, before the Americans intervened, uh, France uh, deployed in the early 1950s uh, massive forces into Indochina, and they were fundamentally beaten by uh, Ho Chi Minh, by the National Liberation Front and the Viet Minh. Um, 1954, the famous collapse at Dien Bien Phu, where thousands of French troops were killed and captured by the Vietnamese, uh, really broke uh, the French army. At the same time, French forces were deployed in Algeria, which had been a department, an overseas department of France, Algerie Française, but a small uh, 
population of Europeans known as the Pied-Noir, or the Blackfeet, governed millions of Muslim Algerians. And a very bitter war between 1954 and 1962, over a million people died in the Algerian war, and the Gauls returned to power in 1958 uh, after an attempted military coup in Algeria, brought hope for the extreme right that they would be able to um, to govern, but uh, de Gaulle eventually negotiated with the FLN, the Front de Libération Nationale, the Algerian Nationalist Movement, and the Evian Peace Accords in 1962 uh, saw another defeat for the French state. So that history from World War II through Indochina through Algeria, the collapse of the Fourth Republic, de Gaulle's new constitution, the Fifth Republic, his authoritarian manner, you know, France, the French ruling class, was in, in a very difficult situation. So all these factors coming together were also underlain by Vietnam, by the war in Vietnam. By 1968, American troops, Australian troops indeed, had been deployed there. The real turning point in early 1968 was uh, a massive offensive by the National Liberation Front in South Vietnam, by the North Vietnamese forces, which uh, was called the Tet Offensive, uh, it was, in fact, a, a significant military setback for the, the Vietnamese uh, nationalist movement, but politically it was an enormous success. Having been told by LBJ, the U.S. president, by uh, General Westmoreland, the commander of the Vietnamese, uh, the American forces in Vietnam, that uh, there was light ahead at the end of the tunnel, that we were winning, that we were defeating it, the fact that there were rebellions across the country, U.S. bases attacked, indeed even in Saigon, uh, a Vietnamese commando attacked the U.S. Embassy and almost penetrated inside the, the embassy uh, and so on. It was a huge shock to the public in America and indeed around the world that had been told the war was going really well. So all those factors coming together, the, the structural economic ones about heading towards the end of the long boom with unequal uh, benefits of the spoils, crisis of French leadership under General de Gaulle, the backdrop of the war in Vietnam, which was radicalising people all around the world, and particularly radicalising young people, and France having this baby boom demographic that were entering the universities and um, wanted change. Was there one spark? The particular spark was at Nanterre, which is a, a university, part of the University of Paris, uh, in the western suburbs. It was sort of like an outlying campus of, of the, the main university, and it was a, a campus built in the middle of nowhere with very poor transport for students to get there, with very poor communal facilities, you know, cafeterias and all that sort of stuff, dormitories that were segregated by, by sex, and a very authoritarian academic leadership. And so it was a, a university created, really, to take the overflow from universities in central Paris. And because conditions were so shit-house at the university for the students there, they began agitating around issues such as men being allowed to visit the women's dormitory, uh, the quality of food, all the usual sort of gripes that students have about their condition. But that soon was politicised by a range of groups, political groups, who looked at this as a microcosm of these larger questions about authoritarian rule under the Fifth Republic, under General de Gaulle's rule, under the, the generation of leaders who brought these disasters from World War II into China, Vietnam, Algeria, and so on. Famously, uh, a young guy called Daniel Cohn-Bondy, uh, who was of German origin but uh, was living in France, who was a sort of anarcho-pacifist, uh, uh, later became a Greens MP in, in later life, 
There were people from UNEF, the National Union of uh, Students of France, which was uh, an umbrella body for, like the NUS or other bodies, uh, an umbrella body for students um, that had uh, strike con- quite strong communist uh, membership. There was a range of left groups, uh, Trotskyist and particularly Maoist um, in those days. This was the time, of course, of the Great Cultural Revolution in China, where Chinese political influence um, politically globally was having an influence. So the full spectrum of left-wing agitation from Socialist Party people to more conservative communists in the French Communist Party uh, to people from left and revolutionary groups, that spectrum soon leapt into the fray and provided a lot of leadership. And through guerrilla tactics, Combondi and, and many other leaders, uh, Alan Geismar and others, basically flat-footed the authorities um, after protests around uh, the dormitories. Uh, a series of student leaders were arrested and were charged under university authority. They were taken uh, before the authorities, and of course they told them to get stuffed and uh, mobilise the students. And what began in early May with the uh, charges against student leaders, soon blossomed over the next week. And students in Paris at the Sorbonne, the main, uh, most famous university in France, and uh, indeed a number of other tertiary colleges, not only in Paris but around the country, began organising, um, began protesting against the repression of the Nanterre student leaders. And uh, through a series of marches and protests and so on, there were these massive outpouring of protest. So have you got the middle-class students in there now? Yeah, I mean, but the, the opening up of the university system had brought a lot of working-class students, um, you know, as has happened in Australia, um, with the, the reforms of the Whitlam era, where really universities, which had been historically a very hide-bound, stuffy, uh, ruling-class sort of environment, were opened up to working-class people. There was massive technical education programs as well in France. You know, France saw itself as a leader of technical innovation, and we saw that with nuclear power, with um, aircraft and aerospace work and, and, and things like that, that France was increasingly becoming a technologically advanced society, um, building the Concorde and all sorts of things, uh, fast trains and so on. There was a need for a technically educated as well as uh, humanities educated uh, uh, group of, uh, of people, and so the universities expanded to take in those working class youth as well as traditional uh, middle class and upper class uh, snobs and that that really created a melting pot and so all these things were coming together you know and and ultimately culminated in in a series of protests that led to police attacking the universities and indeed investing the main university at the Sorbonne the hated uh, CRS Compagnie de Républicaine de Sécurité were a paramilitary police force um, created beyond your normal gendarme, your normal police officer these were heavily armed police with tear gas and truncheons uh, uh, helmeted, uh, visors, shields, the lot. And they were tough guys. You know, they'd famously been launched against the peace movement during the Algerian War and committed several atrocities. Uh, in Paris in 1961, the police and the CRS murdered hundreds, some say thousands, of Algerians who were protesting against the war. They also turned against the European peace movement, the famous massacre at Sharon Station where the CRS were launched against a, uh, a student and church demonstration and a number of people died in the crush as the, they were blocked into a station, and a subway station. You know, the CRS were notoriously fascist bastards and, and uh, you know, the slogan came up, CRSSS. This was only, you know, 25 years after the war and they were seen like the Vichy milice and, and police 
that had been used uh, by the Nazis to hunt down the resistance uh, during the Second World War. And so occupying the universities with CRS and other police forces was a red rag to a bull, and the student movement mobilised in the streets, and indeed there was soon street fighting, literally, with um, unarmed protesters uh, armed only with paving stones launching them at the police. And uh, particularly on the night of the 10th to 11th of May, 1968, there was a night of fighting across Paris with people, uh, students first, then young workers, then many other people supporting them to build barricades, a traditional French revolutionary activity in Paris, literally ripping up the paving stones to build barricades, overturn cars and fighting the police who responded with tear gas. And it was a, a moment of incredible turmoil and and for many middle class people it polarised their attitude these were often the sons and daughters of the middle class that were out there fighting and many supported the students others were horrified feeling that this was a turn towards revolution and chaos that it would open more the way for the communists and so on so it was a a time that polarised opinion in France and it created a massive cultural upsurge also this um, period between early May and uh, the 10th of May, the subsequent weeks, where the students reoccupied the universities and turned them into liberated spaces. Can I ask you how the workers got involved and how many of the workers and how many of the unions got involved? Yeah, this was a, a time too that's affected all people in the society, not just people in universities. It was a time of incredible public discussion about where France was, where it was going. De Gaulle by this time was 77, so he was ageing and was seen often as a dictator by people on the left. The main union confederations were aligned with one or other political party, so the CGT, the largest trade union confederation, was aligned with the French Communist Party. There was also a a socialist-aligned confederation, CFDT, as well as Force Ouvrière, particularly unions related to... uh, uh, education as well and so on and the education unions obviously got drawn into to this uh, process the French Communist Party was very wary and there was a real split between the, you know, in a shorthand the old left and the new left French Communist Party had always been historically very pro-Soviet, uh, Stalinist had been a very conservative force in many ways uh, in spite of its strength within the organised working class in, in France the New left forces, as I mentioned, were a mixture of anarchists, pacifists, uh, Maoists, Trotskyists, you know, a full spectrum of political forces on the left, and a whole lot of non-aligned young people who are into sex, drugs and rock and roll. And so the, the communist leaders saw this massive upsurge, literally street fighting and so on, and were very fearful that it could lead there. What happened, though, was that ordinary working class people began to resist and indeed started to occupy factories. Um, on May the 14th, 1968, at uh, a town called Nantes, which is in the west of France, um, workers at Sud Aviation, big aerospace uh, company, occupied their factory. Well, they saw this as a time of change. They, some believed it was a time of revolution. Some believed that the old order was crumbling. Um, you know, the world around was changing. Um, and, and let's not forget that this was an incredible year across the world. You know, when you think back to 1968, in America you had... Uh, incredible riots across America. You had the debate over the American presidential election, um, the assassination of Martin Luther King, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy later in the year. In the Eastern Bloc too, Czechoslovakia, the Dubček uh, government in Czechoslovakia had been talking about socialism with a human face. 
and the tanks rolled in to crush later in the year the um, Czechoslovak uh, socialist movement that was looking for a different way from the Stalinist tradition of Eastern Europe at that time. There was a whole debate around uh, this in developing countries as well. In Mexico later in the year, um, this was later obviously than the Paris events, but uh, in October that year, Mexican students were on the streets uh, protesting in the lead-up to Mexico hosting the Olympic Games. And Mexican police came and massacred dozens and dozens of students in the streets. So right across the world, indeed, in Australia, there were protests. And Vietnam was the symbol of this, but it was more than Vietnam. It was about the sort of society that existed and the way in which the wealth of the economic growth that people had seen in the 25 years since the the end of the war was not being shared equally. And it's it's a debate we have today about the inequalities of capitalist development. Some benefit very well, but for many... It doesn't bring that. And this was a moment of great hope for young people. And whether you're a young worker or a young student, they were at the forefront. And so what began at Sudavillation, which was a very well-organized workplace with strong union component, was a wildcat strike, as the Americans call them, you know, an unofficial strike, where the workers literally occupied the plant. And this spread through other areas, uh, many of them with strong union organization, but also in smaller factories and, and so on. And uh, the car plants, particularly. Um, so the major Renault car plants uh, at Billancourt in Paris, uh, uh, at Rouen, uh, the French, another French city, huge industrial sites. Young workers and not-so-young workers began to organise. And it freaked out the leadership from the CGT and others who saw, uh, you know, who were critical of the new left fighting with the police in the streets, were fearful that it would get out of control and lead to repression, but then found within the factories too there was a movement. So the Communist Party called um, soon after the events of May the 10th, the massive public rally, estimated up to a million people marched through Paris, but then uh, beyond, and they hoped that you know this show of strength in the streets would uh, force the government to, to change, but de Gaulle and the, the government uh, stood firm. But by this stage, it was getting out of control of the unions and factory occupations, uh, mobilizations was happening in the major cities, but indeed across large parts of the country. And it was happening in the cultural sphere as well. You know, famously that year, uh, Jean-Luc Godard and François Truffaut, the famous directors, called on the Cannes Film Festival to, uh, to shut down uh, in solidarity with the striking workers. And, you know, essentially a general strike was happening. It's estimated between 10 and 11 million workers were on strike across the country, and the country ground to a halt in terms of uh, this. And it was a a significant test of force with uh, the young people urging the movement on, urging to go further, and indeed the belief was that revolution was in the air. That wasn't the case, and it was pretty clear that the ruling class would soon step back and, and, and regroup, and that's in fact what happened. Um, by the end of the month, the end of May, uh, General de Gaulle disappeared one day, literally from, from office in the Alesi Palace, flew to Germany. He met there in Baden-Baden with uh, French troops deployed in, in Germany as part of NATO forces, um, even though he'd stepped out of NATO, and uh, met with General Jacques Massou, who was the famous uh, general who'd put down the Algerian revolt in Algiers in uh, uh, the mid-1950s, uh, the famous Battle of Algiers, Massou and his paratroopers had, uh, through torture, through uh, repression, through arrests and, and jailings of thousands of people, had, uh, had controlled Algiers, the capital of Algeria, during the, uh, during the war. 
and Masu, uh, no one really knows because it was in a closed room, but the suggestion is that uh, the, the generals gave de Gaulle the backing that uh, uh, he needed to, to go back through astute political moves. He called elections uh, for later in June. The strike wave began to, to falter. Workers returned to work. The students uh, were driven off the campuses, uh, in many cases, uh, campus by campus by the police. And by the time of the elections, de Gaulle was returned to power with a significant majority in the elections on 23rd of June uh, that year. Repercussions? Well, the repercussions were significant. I mean, de Gaulle was gone within a year, even though he convincingly won the elections to the National Assembly from a conservative backlash against what had happened. uh, His government was fatally uh, broken. De Gaulle uh, left to retirement. You know, he was an old man by then, 78, and, uh, you know, he really broke the back of the Gaullist regime and new governments coming in had to uh, address this massive popular upsurge. And it was really, uh, although the political revolution might have failed, the social revolution certainly hadn't. And 1968 was a major turning point in France in terms of how workplaces were organised. You know, workers had taken over their workplaces in small and large. And so to go back to old styles of management, command and control from a rather stuffy, aristocratic bureaucracy was never going to work. So both in the public service and in the private sector, there was a a transformation of the workplace, and that led to significant economic change within France uh, in many ways, which had been a very bureaucratic and centralised state. At the cultural level, you know, it it really transformed France, and you have today, uh, you know, in recent years, uh, conservative leaders like uh, former President Nicolas Sarkozy I'm saying we have to get rid of the spirit of 68, you know, the spirit of of change. And the slogans of that time have become famous. You can go and look up books about the graffiti that was scrawled across the universities, across the city. Um, You know, be realistic, demand the impossible. You know, beneath the paving stones, the beach, sous les pavés, la plage. You know, that as the people were ripping up the, the paving stones to build barricades, joy was there, the beach was there, and so on. And that spirit of rebellion and revolt couldn't be cowed. It led to significant changes across Europe. You know, the events of May 68 in Paris served as an inspiration for radical and revolutionary movements across the world, particularly because it seemed to link the revolt of young people, the revolt of students, with organised working-class agitation in the factories with and without union leadership, And that was significant for many socialists across the world, that this wasn't simply a youth revolt, it wasn't just sex, drugs and rock and roll, it was about the role of class, it was about the way in which workplaces could be seized and transformed, and that inspired a generation of people to go into the factories, um, to go and organise workplaces. So a whole generation of students who came out of the student revolt in the late 60s often ended up in workplaces, whether as teachers or public servants, but also just going into the factories, into car plants and so on. And the economic downturn by the mid-70s and the oil crisis in 1973 and so on really transformed that movement and collapsed that movement in many ways. And so there was a backlash against that. But it was a time of uh, great learning and has left enormous resonance, not only for France, but across the world. What about resonance for the union movement? Because the union leaders didn't necessarily support all that the workers were doing. It left uh, 
an experience for workers that uh, continued on over many decades of self-organisation and there's a traditions of self-management in workplaces in France that have, you know, left important legacies um, um, in future years. It also highlighted the very conservative nature in some ways of the French Communist Party. It wasn't until the 1980s that uh, communist and socialist ministers came together in the government with the election of François Mitterrand in 1981. And there was a brief period where the legacy of the 1960s began to take place in the early days of the Mitterrand administration in 1981 after years of conservative rule. There was a bit of a Whitlam-its time period where the socialists began to change a lot of things in France. But it was a terrible time internationally. You know, uh, um, the new Cold War had come, the Reagan administration in the United States, and Mitterrand soon devolved into, uh, you know, all sorts of nonsense. And, uh, I mean, it's a whole other story, but, uh, you know, the symbol of that for us was the Rainbow Warrior attack where Mitterrand unleashed the French intelligence services against the Rainbow Warrior, which is hardly the spirit of 1968. So, you know, the French Communist Party, you know, continues to this day as a political force, but much weakened. And uh, it lost a lot of authority because it was so hesitant and so cautious during those uh, Paris years. And some of the leaders of the, the student movement, the, the workers, what did they go on to do? Well, they went in all sorts of different directions. Uh, many continued as progressives of various sorts. They might have given up, as often happens, the revolutionary ardour of their youth, but they went on to uh, move into all sorts of institutions and really transformed a lot of things. So in the media, for example, many, uh, Wittard, the, the 68 generation moved into the media. And so Le Monde, uh, new paper Liberation, uh, and others, uh, were, you know, the media was really transformed from a very authoritarian and closed media world, that sort of generation. And that was often elite students who were middle class students who uh, had been revolutionaries in their youth and went on to good professional jobs. There was a certain backlash from some of the um, uh, more extreme students who turned deeply anti-communist in the 1970s, uh, uh, the, the movement of the new philosophers, the nouveau philosophes, who were surprisingly stunned by revelations by Solzhenitsyn and others about uh, uh, Stalinism in the, in the Soviet Union, about uh, uh, the Brezhnev period and so on. And there was a small but significant group people like Anna Finkelkraut and others who turned against the left and became, you know, more heretical than, than anything else and, uh, and launched into deeply anti-communist, anti-totalitarian strands. So amongst elite people, some went into the institutions teaching media, you know, professional life and uh, kept up their progressive politics. Others uh, turned to the extreme right. For ordinary working people... Um, the legacy lived on. Um, people learnt that you can control your own workplace, that workers have something to bring to the table. The command and control management systems that dominate most industrial sites can only survive with workers, and that moment of power lives with people for the rest of their life, and, and that has not uh, not gone away. And I think that's where, in this 50th anniversary year about the events of 1968, the right continues to say, oh, you know, it was a terrible time and a time that led to sexual licentiousness and pornography and um, we need to go back to the old values and people want to erase the memory that those particular weeks and months had of what liberation felt like. 
And once again, it's thanks to researcher and journalist Nick McClellan, and that was May 1968 in Paris, France. That's about all I have for today, but I will be back next week. Radiothon for Tuesday Home Time is the 12th of June, which I believe is probably three weeks from today, if I'm right. I think it's three weeks, but that three weeks will go fairly quickly. So if you're um, considering donating to this program, it will be really great if you do it beforehand so that we can announce your name or otherwise on the day of the Radiothon. You can ring on 94198377 during office hours and find out all the ways that you can donate to 3CR. We'll have more details of that in the next couple of weeks. But do consider keeping this wonderful radio station on air. We're all volunteers here. We come in, do our programmes each week with... Um, well, we wouldn't do it if we didn't love it, so that's why we're here. So we just hope that you will support the work that all the volunteers here do to keep 3CR on air right through the year, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and that's us. So I'll go out now with Charcoal Lane from Archie Roach, and in a couple of minutes' time, you'll be hearing from Done by Law. Bye for now.